Welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Ana Herrera, Chief Correspondent at Reuters in London, where she covers fintech and tech-related developments at some of the world's largest financial institutions. In her role, she works in stories at the intersection of Wall Street and Silicon Valley, including crypto, blockchain, peer-to-peer lending, online investing, and just fintech all around. In this episode, we discuss Anna's journey when she began to cover fintech before it was cool and mainstream, the exponential evolution of fintech over the last 10 years, and why it's become increasingly more challenging to cover the space, her editorial process, and the steps she takes when deciding to write a story, the rise of crypto, and why the audience loves reading about it, noticeable differences of shifting bank cultures, the rise of global fintech, and just a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ana Herrera. Ana, welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Super excited to have you here all the way from Italy. How are you doing today? Yes, I'm great. Thank you. How are you, Miguel? Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to finally be on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. We've been talking for a while, so I'm glad we finally got it in the books. So Anna, I mean, maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself. You So you now cover fintech for Reuters, but um, you've been covering fintech yeah. for a long time. Yeah. So I joined Reuters in 2016 in New York, and I was already covering fintech. That was my sole beat. I had a more of a, I guess, US focus just because I was there. I moved back to London where I was before late this summer, and my role has been expanded a bit. I have a more fancy-sounding title. And so now, obviously, I still cover U.S. fintech, but being in Europe, I, I cover Europe more. And I guess my remit is a bit global, like fintech itself. And by fintech, kind of everything, you know, like be it what the banks are doing with tech and digital, the fintech startups. It's just a very broad area, which I guess makes it fun. And, and why fintech, right? How, how did you stumble upon this industry? Uh, take us back to, you know, the... I was really lucky. I was, I was working at Dow Jones in London when I started my career. And I was working for a paper called Financial News, which was a sort of like trade publication that covers the city of London. And when you join, at least joined at the time, you would normally, if you were junior, normally go on the online desk, which meant you would cover sort of breaking news type things and didn't have a beat. And no one really cared for fintech of the beat reporters because the deals were small and it was like it seemed like this like niche thing no one cared and I previously been at Reuters and I'd done some stories about tech ecosystems and startups for some reason and I just you know naturally gravitated towards it and then I thought you know if we cover the finance sector as an industry and as companies then surely like the disruption that happened in other sectors will happen in finance and so we should cover it right because if you're a finance professional you should know more about it and it makes sense. And so will the companies that read us. And no one else claimed it. And then I got really lucky because I got the publication, got a new editor and he sort of was a bit of a tech geek as well, like me. And he really believed in it and it was fun. And so we started doing more about it. And, you know, at the time there were also fewer like major outlets that had fintech beat reporters, even, you know, we were part of Dow Jones. So we were kind of part of the Wall Street Journal and it, the journal itself didn't have any fintech reporters until 
when I left. And so, you know, my story is also one of the journals. So it was kind of organic and it was, you know, happenstance. It was great. And then it became a beat. And so now it's cool in certain circles. <laughs> For nerds like you and I. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I don't think there was a single fintech podcast by then. <laughs> no, definitely not when I began. And I remember there weren't many like student associations as well. And one of the first ones was, was the Wharton one. And I met Daniel and Steve at a Cyboss ages ago, which now feels like a million years ago. So it was one of the first sort of student organizations that I, university organizations that I, that I met. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. And so you've alluded to this, but it started and there were, when you started, there were just a few startups and that were just gaining traction, right? But over time, this has changed and now it's probably one of the most dynamic places to cover. You know, take us through that evolution and how have you also adapted to cover an increasingly busy you know market yeah it's been pretty crazy like because exponentially each year it keeps getting bigger and bigger and more of a central story to finance and in whatever area you look at right payments or you know and with covid it exploded even more i guess maybe the embodiment of it was this year with like gamestop and robin hood and, and all the rest so it's not that easy for me because, you know, if you're like a traditional finance beat reporter, you might cover the banks. And so, you know, you have a Goldman reporter and a JP Morgan reporter. And while it's, it's challenging to cover an institution that that's that big and has like such a big media apparatus or like a sheltering apparatus, I should say, at least it's one company and you can focus on getting sources and knowing that company really well. Whereas with fintech, it's so many. And often like the companies aren't that important until they become important and then you're covering everyone so you know I try to know as many you know CEOs as I can and entrepreneurs as I can and it was easier maybe at the beginning to never turn down calls with a new startup and now it's just getting harder because of how, how busy I am but how many companies there are but I also try to know as many you know experts or people that are investors so that you know maybe you don't know that company very well but if something happens around that company or in, in that sector, then you know people who can tell you why it's important and why it matters and maybe hopefully connect you to somebody in that company. But yeah, it's, it's definitely changed. It's gone from being niche and no one cares to like people jumping on it to have their name on a story about it as, along with others, right? And how do you decide what to cover, right, on, on a daily basis? It's not easy. So like traditionally, for like fundraise stories, Obviously, the size matters at this point because there's so many. But what I'll also try to look is, is if, you know, one of the investors is a big company, then, you know, it's not so much the size of the investment that matters, but the strategic component, right? So like, say, JP Morgan or Stripe, they make a $2 million investment in a company. That's nothing for those companies, but it just signals what they're interested in. And it might be a sign of where they're going, what they think is important. So for fundraise stories, I try to look at, you know, the intention behind it and, and what matters. Or for example, if there's been 10 companies of that type raising money, then clearly there's like a trend around that. I also like doing like broader kind of in-depth stories about, I did one about kids banking or I'll do one about, I write a lot about crypto now just because the market's rallying again. I did one around whether, you know, more companies will be buying Bitcoin for their treasuries. Like I try to like, I love doing stories that are kind of an analysis, but also answering kind of questions people might have about the sector. And then obviously if we can get, obviously scoops are important, but also if we can get, you know, 
really like revealing things that companies or people don't want to be revealed. It's always good, right, for, for investors and for leaders and for the health of the industry. Yeah, yeah I, I see what you mean. And so you just mentioned your coverage of crypto, right? And, and of course, this yeah. is a segment that is heating up, continues to heat up. So you've made the choice to cover this sector very, you know, in depth, very closely. What are you seeing today? I mean, we, we've seen the PayPal crypto checkout rollout. We, you just mentioned we've seen Tesla and the likes adding Bitcoin yeah. to their treasury. I mean, every, every time I'm surprised, and you should not be surprised with crypto because the unexpected always happens. But I think, you know, many people wouldn't have predicted that we would be where we are with crypto now. So I'm just interested in, again, like my main point here that I'm really interested in figuring out is like with things like the PayPal sort of story, which obviously was a big deal, is will people actually be using Bitcoin for payments? Because up until now, one of the reasons they weren't was because it wasn't very easy to do so. Or at least that sort of was the, the rhetoric around it, although there were like cards to pay. So I guess you could. But, you know, if now PayPal with like millions of merchants finally lets you pay with your crypto and then people don't pay with it, then what does it mean about Bitcoin as a form of payment? Is that just not what it is? And will we see other cryptos do actually take off as forms of payment? That's kind of my biggest question. Like, I'm really curious to see in like six months or a year, because they have seen explosion in people buying crypto with their platform, they say. So they, they do have users that have Bitcoin in there. Will they actually spend it? Or is it really just... It's the best use for crypto and Bitcoin, just speculation, right? Which is the use case in itself, but it's very different from what some of the proponents are hoping or have been saying for many years now. I'm guessing the audience is also responding to crypto. Right? Like, say you, you release a, a story about crypto and then a story about a, a traditional neobank, right? I mean, where are you getting the most attention from the audience? Yeah, like crypto is always super well read. Obviously, you know, Reuters has. We're wire, so we cater to media clients, which are other publications, televisions. And then we also have like finance our financial clients, which get our news through like the terminal. So you can see as soon as the stories go up, which ones get most read, and crypto just shoots up really quickly all the time. And it's funny to me because you know it's still quite small compared <laughs> to other big things. So like maybe a story about some big bond issuance would be more relevant to their daily lives. But I think people just have a fascination with crypto and it's new and it's fun. And I guess it's, it's different, but it's been that way since, since like, especially during rallies, you know, the interest obviously goes up. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I imagine you have your sources, right? And, but your sources are coming from traditional banks or traditional financial incumbents but also startups, right? Is there a notorious, noticeable difference between covering one and the other? So, I mean, it depends really now at this point, which area of fintech, right? Because some areas of fintech have become so big that the people that work in them are people that used to work in banks until like five years ago, 10 years ago. So the mentality and even on a just practical level, the sort of professionalism around working with them is very similar. If you cover, and crypto is going that way too, but it's still more like of a wild west. So, and also just the ideas in crypto, something that they will replace the traditional financial system. So, it, so it's just a very different mindset. Obviously, you know, if you're covering a startup, it's just easier to get access to speak to the 
CEO, right? And that's extremely valuable because they have great insight and they're the ones who have the idea. And so it's always great. If you're spe- covering a bank, you don't always get access to the CEO, especially if you just cover the tech aspect. You know, this has changed because I remember early days, if you were the covering fintech, you'd speak to the innovation reporter. Whereas now you, you do have very senior people who deal with tech and innovation. Innovation has become a board level and digital in general, not just innovation has become a sort of board level topic. And so even the CEOs of banks will engage in this too, right? So it's just been a dramatic change, I guess, from when I started covering fintech. Like literally no one, it was like super niche, no one cared. And now it's, you know, it gets mentioned all the time. Think about, you know, Goldman Sachs, right? Like they've created a whole new division that's consumer, but is really just digital consumer. They're building a whole new digital bank. So, and their CEO regularly talks about it in, in earnings. Like it's just another world. Yeah, no, I even, I spent, I was in a rotational program at one of the big banks and I spent a year in their operations and tech department and the forgotten department, right? And, and this is like, I don't know, eight, eight years ago or so. So, but uh, that's obviously changing. At least some banks are trying to change. And it sounds like you are seeing that as well from your point of view. Yeah. I mean, there's still a bit of like the tech is the help kind of mentality in some banks. Yeah. But very much there's been a, a big difference where, you know, in some institutions, I guess maybe the most digital savvy ones where, you know, tech savvy employees or employees with tech mentality or tech skills are becoming more important, right? Like, so, you know, they have their own place, right? I'm not sure when that change happens within a bank organization, if it happens perhaps when revenue is lost or generated based on the skills or, you know, the tech teams. And so if you start clearly showing that you can bring or lose money, then you become more important, hopefully not lose, but you know what I mean, right? When, when it starts yeah. affecting your bottom line, then you do become more important. Yeah. And ironically, a lot of it is also just competition driven, right? So if Goldman starts doing it or, you know, if JP Morgan starts doing it, then maybe yeah. we should do it, right? <laughs> and so these banks are global, right? But also fintech is increasingly global and, and your mandate is not just uh, the US or Europe, right? So tell us about your international coverage, right? We see a lot of exciting activity going on, particularly in emerging markets. I mean, it's not ideal these days just because we can't go anywhere, right? And I'm always a bit wary of reporter in London writing story about fintech innovation in Kenya, right? It's just like, what does she know? So obviously, like the great thing about Reuters is we have thousands of reporters all across the globe. And so I can naturally work with people that are based in all these places and know the market much better than I do and know the nuances and the culture and everything. So when I was in the US, I, I worked a lot with a couple of times with South American reporters. And now I'm sort of keen to do more with Asia, but I guess we'll have to wait a bit and see with the COVID situation, if it improves, I would be keen to travel a bit <laughs> and, and report on, on other areas. I think that the nice thing about emerging markets is that they're often, you know, and it's, it's not like I'm revealing anything, something people don't know, but, but it's just, you know, there's no legacy to replace. And so the innovation happens quicker and, you know, you can see the utility of things quite fast. I mean, one thing I'm not always would be fascinated to read more about, but I would also be less skilled to write about it, just what's going on in China. Because I think they're like a 
thousand years ahead in terms of fintech. And, you know, now we see all these digital banks trying to become a financial super app like Ant, and there they've had it for ages. So, you know, I think it'd be cooler to read more stories on like Western media about, you know, China and China fintech and, you know, what's going on and what some un- unintended consequences of, of super apps might be and so forth. Yeah, we, we had uh, David Vélez from Nubank and he said that he went to China mm-hmm. and he saw the future, right? But uh, unfortunately, we haven't had a single Chinese fintech on this podcast. I guess, shame on us, right? But we, we need to fix that. But it's a whole different world. Yeah, I think it's just in general, I think there's just less coverage. It's not just you guys, but it's just, you know, we like to stargaze and, and try to read the future in fintech and, and often the future is already there, right? So if we just read more, or learn more about what's going on there, then it'd be quite informative, I think. But, I, you know, and my, and my assumptions are also based on speaking to entrepreneurs here who go there more often and tell me, you know, it's already happening. It's already happened. So, Yeah. And, and, and you mentioned traveling and actually visiting all these places that you cover, obviously, that's been challenging or impossible during the pandemic. Has it just been a, a Zoom and, and phone game for you? Uh, yeah, it's, it's been quite tragic. I think, well, tragic. Wait, let's put this into proportion. There's been other things that are more tragic about the pandemic than, than reporters not being able to, to travel. But it's just not been great for reporting in general because so much of our job is, and also what I think attracts many of us to this job is the ability to speak to people and engage and you know, it's nice to meet people on Zoom, but it's it's really not the same thing. And you can't create the same level of connection that you would in person. And even like events, you know, like one event, maybe you're like grumbling that you're like, oh, I don't want to go to this conference. But then in the, around the conference, you meet so many people and it's so, such an enriching opportunity. And for us, like we need to know what's going on and stay on top of trends and hear what people are talking about. And if we never meet them, then... You can only do so much in, in Zoom calls. Like it's maybe a bit easier if you've been covering a beat for longer, like me, because you already have sources. But I imagine if you're a new beat reporter, it will have been really hard to just do calls for like a year. Yeah, there's such a big difference. I think everyone I know is is just waiting desperately to go back. And I think conferences are gonna be exploding with attendees. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, I hope so yeah. yeah. Anna, one of the things that has definitely been a topic over the last year is just going public. And obviously, we have direct listings, we have SPACs, and we have IPOs. And you have an interesting perspective, meaning that you've been covering IPOs, both U.S. IPOs or companies in the U.S. going public, as well as UK ones. And I think the example that we're talking about before we start recording is Deliveroo, right? And how they have underperformed. And I think it's the worst IPO in the London Stock Exchange in a long time. Right? Yeah, um, which is crazy because people would have imagined, you know, it's like what happened with food delivery services during the pandemic, you think they do really well. Yeah, so it's been a long-term problem or issue or thing in Europe with the Europe Texas ecosystem is sort of a chicken and egg problem. Is it like, do you not have as many startups because they have less funding because investors see less of a local exit opportunity? Um, do you need a very healthy sort of listing or public tech market for companies to grow and stay in Europe? Or is it sort of the other way around? So with Deliveroo, I think 
you know, we did a story on, on Thursday. We were try, trying to figure out whether, you know, it was a Deliveroo problem or if it was a, a long-term Europe problem. And it seems like people were telling us a, a bit of a mix, you know, that it wasn't a London problem. Some were saying that London is perfectly fine and it's a fine place to list and there's appetite from investors. But Deliveroo had its own issues. Like people were worried that after the pandemic, then, you know, some of the reasons why they've been making money will go away. They had issues with labor rules, right, and workers and with the governance. And then others were just saying, you know, and we heard from someone close to one of the board members that they were thinking maybe we should have gone with a SPAC in New York, right? And there's a thinking that perhaps the U.S. is still a better place to list if you're pre-revenue, that the investors there are more sort of open and also more like used to like investing in pre-revenue. So it's interesting because you know, there's so many companies in fintech that are planning to list or about to list. One of the big ones in Europe is TransferWise, which is now called Wise. So I'll be curious to see if they stick with London or if they go somewhere else or yeah, just they change. And I think they've been saying, or I'm not sure if it's them or or just in general, the reporting has been that they're planning London. But you know, what if they change? They see the and change their mind last minute. Yeah, at least at a minimum, the whole situation with Deliveroo, I'm sure, has sparked boardroom conversation of whether it's a good idea to list in London. And, and you know, yeah. Wise is one, but there are a lot more fintech companies in, in Europe that are thinking about it. Or also, like we we talk to companies in you know in Africa or, or Asia that are starting to gain scale, mm-hmm. and if they were considering the U.S. before, I'm, I'm sure now they're convinced they're going to go for the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see. Maybe like it'll just proceed as it was going to proceed before and they'll just go for London. It's, it's a big deal for London also given Brexit, right? Like if they can get all these big wins and it shows London is not losing its, the city of London is not losing its sort of crown as the, the sort of dominant financial center for Europe, right? So everybody's investing a lot of time to get these companies to stay. And I guess it'd be good and a good, great testament to the local ecosystem, right? Because again, as I said, you know, if you can show that you can be born out of a city and succeed there and stay there and list there, then it just bodes well for other companies. And then obviously you create sort of an ecosystem of, of people that can, you know, exit a company and create their own. And it's just kind of the sort of West type style of tech, right? Which in Europe has, has always been a bit harder to do or has taken longer. And Anna, I mean, given your your global perspective and you know just wide outlook of, of the entire market, crypto aside, because I know that's a, a big focus, but crypto aside, are there any verticals that you're paying maybe special attention to? You you're more excited about? I'm really one area that I was really looking at. I did a story about that in the U.S., but I'm kind of keen to hear more about everywhere. It's just the buy now later sector that's just exploded everywhere. And, you know, there's been, depending on different companies, there've been more concerns from regulators or less. So I'm keen to see what happens in the U.S. on that front. Because obviously, like, you just think consumer, unsecured consumer lending growing during, like, a pandemic and crisis. Like, what are the possible outcomes? And Jenna, it's just interest fascinating because it's not new, new for fintech, but, but it's just exploded right now. So what will happen? I'm, I'm just keen to see that. I'm also like really interested in sort of the sort of vertical neobanks, some ones that are built around sort of, I guess, I guess the identity of their customers at that school. I think it'd be interesting to see how they do. And, and just, you know, I guess I, I keep saying this and I've been saying this forever, but 
maybe it's just like my professional deformation and what I'm supposed to do, but I'm keen to see like, again, who gets long-term traction, who has sort of adoption that's here to stay. Like some sectors have proven that, some still have to, right? Like, and who actually becomes a profitable business? Some of these companies still aren't. And so, you know, is it just a question of deciding that you'll, you'll switch to being that rather than just reinvesting in, in growth or some models just broken and they can't, can't make money? And I'm also like, more specifically, I'm also really fascinated by sort of the self-directed and sort of non-self-directed investing and how, you know, both have been fintechized, if you can say that. Both have, have been taken on by fintech companies, but one has seen massive explosion this year is self-directed and the other has sort of been growing slowly and not really exploded. So like, will that change? Why is it not changing? It's just one topic I'm fascinated in. Uh, fantastic. And, you know, I look forward to continuing to follow your coverage, which is always uh, on top of the latest things. Uh, before we let you go, Anna, we always love to hear about our guests' hobbies. Right. And maybe you can tell us a, a little bit of outside of your time covering the industry. It's very sad. I had a, a daughter a year and a half ago. So my hobbies have now been drastically reduced. Like I now just by spare time is spent reading children's books. So I can recite several well-known children's books by heart. I think that's my main hobby. And also like with the pandemic, like I used to love going to the theater, music, like musicals. I love going to New York. Um, like all these, all these museums, all these things that like I, could, I haven't been able to do. So coupled with having a child and the pandemic, my hobbies have been reduced to zero, which makes me very sad and very. I guess I guess fintech is also my hobby then, which makes me a special kind of nerdy. But that's fine. <laughs> this is the right platform for you then. Yeah. <laughs> well, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. You are welcome to come back anytime, right? And it's been a pleasure chatting. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.